or so. Hebrews chapter 13. And this chapter uh, comes right on the tail of what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, I, I keep saying Paul, and it's a, it's a Freudian slip, I guess, but uh, we don't know who the author of Hebrews was. A lot of people think it was Paul. I personally think it was somebody, but I do know that it was the Lord. <laughs> it's God's word, so the human hand is um, not that relevant, and if God had wanted us to know, he would have told us. But Hebrews 13, this chapter comes right after what was said at the end of chapter 12, and I want to link it to chapter 12 so that we see it's how it coordinates. In chapter 12, we come through that final warning of the book of Hebrews about listening to the Word of God, hearing His voice, obeying, um, with the great warning of those who did not heed His voice back at Mount Sinai. But as we come to the end of chapter 12, verse 28 says, Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may, and look at the next verse, next words, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Serving God acceptably with reverence and godly fear ties right into the last chapter that he's going to give us. In chapter 13, we have quite a list, a compilation of specific instructions on how to live. And truly, how to live acceptably unto God with reverence and godly fear. And I think that, is, that really is the transition into chapter 13, because he starts in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. That right there is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the New Testament church. Brotherly love. Where else on earth can you find a group of people who truly love one another and love in a selfless manner? You can't find that anywhere else on the earth. In fact, it's so rare that Jesus said this in John chapter 13 and verse 35. What did Jesus say? He says that you are to love one another. And he says, by this shall all men know that ye are what? My disciples, that ye have love one for another. That is really the most clear testimony to the unbelieving world. When they, say, when they see believers and how they treat one another, what do they see? Well, if we truly are the disciples of Christ, they are going to note that we what? We love one another. We love one another. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church at Corinth there to really, in a nutshell, instruct them how to love one another. In other words, if you bite and devour one another, if you're taking one another to, law, you know, to the law, to court, having lawsuits, if you're doing this and this, how can you say you love God? First John. What's he stressing there? Love one another. This commandment have I given to you that you love one another. It's the characteristic. It's one of the most unique characteristics of the church, that they love one another. And so here the writer of Hebrews in the, verse, in the first verse He's in the first couple of verses, he's talking about relationships. In our personal relationships in the church, he says, let brotherly love continue. And it ought to be something that is automatic, 
shall we say, it goes without saying. He says, I don't need, Jesus said, I don't even need to tell you this, that you ought to love one another. You yourselves know this. When you become a Christian, you have a love for the brethren that is given to you by God. He says, let it continue. Do not disrupt it. Don't hinder it with self-will. Don't hinder it with you know, self-centeredness. But let brotherly love continue. And then in verse 2, he says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Really, the instruction here is be hospitable. Be hospitable. You never know who you might be entertaining. Or the word really means you be using hospitality. Be gracious. Be gracious. Be willing to be hospitable, even to those you may not know. Sometimes other believers will come through town and you have the opportunity to minister to them, but you've never met them before. We have that opportunity a lot as, as pastoral. People come through town that maybe might have known or people have heard about us and, or other pastors say, yeah, there's a church there and we'll, we'll meet these people. But they're strangers. But the thing is, they're children of God. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Be hospitable. Be gracious. That ought to be a characteristic of believers. Should it not? Which leads me to kind of a, a side trail, and I won't stay here long. What are good manners? You know what good manners are? Simply put, good manners are loving your neighbor as yourself. And just let me encourage you, parents and parents-to-be, or you know, young people, you know, we talk about manners, you know, things as silly as, you know, cover your mouth when you cough or, you know, <laughs> you know, don't chew food, don't chew your food with your mouth open. Did anybody ever hear that as a kid growing up or was it just me? My, you know, my dad was really kind of a stickler on manners, but what are manners? You know what manners are? It's just being gracious and polite to others. Now that's, it sounds silly. And there's whole books, you know, Amy Vanderbilt's book on manners, or all these other things, and you can take them to the nth degree. But simply put, manners are just being gracious to others and considerate. You know, I'm sure when you've had people over to your house, sometimes you'll have people over and you're just like, well, those people were so polite and so gracious, we'd love to see them again. Other times people come over to your house, run and jump all over the furniture, climb the walls, and by the time that you leave, they leave, you're like, boy, if I ever see those people again, I'm going to direct them elsewhere. Okay, but what is it? It's just loving your neighbor as yourself. And here he says, be hospitable. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Then he goes on in verse 3. He talks about those who you may never meet or you may not know. And he says in verse 3, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. At the time of this writing, they would have known exactly what the writer was talking about because he'd already been talking about their sufferings back in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, those who walked by faith obviously suffering great adversity and trials. And what is our attitude to, toward those who suffer for Christ's sake? Well, he says, be mindful of them. Remember them. How do we remember them? Pray for them. 
if you have the opportunity to do good to them, do so. But oftentimes when we hear about people that are suffering for Christ, we think about people in a foreign country, um, far away in distant lands, and we hear horrible stories about how these people are suffering for the Lord. And it's easy for us to say, well, that, yeah, I hope they do well. God bless them. They're not around here. I don't even give them a, a second thought. But he says, be mindful of those who are suffering. Be mindful of those who are in bonds, those who are in jail or in prison for the cause of Christ. And how are we to think of them? Think of them as if it were you, as being bound with them. If you go back and look through the epistles in the book of Acts and you study Paul's life, there are many times when he was in prison. And there are times when there were certain churches who actually ministered to him or sent to his knees while he was in, in prison. And what a great encouragement those things were to Paul. In particular, chapter 4 of Philippians, he mentions this. And it was a great encouragement. You know, it must have been lonely for Paul. There he was in prison, sometimes in Rome, you know, in, in other jails. We know he was in jail at Philippi and you know, down in Caesarea. Uh, many times, Paul was just confined. And, you know, if you've ever been confined... It's kind of a lonely thing. But people prayed for him. People thought of him, and it was a great encouragement to him. So be an encouragement. Remember those that are in bonds as bound with them, and how should we feel about it? It says, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. When Paul speaks about the body of Christ, he says when one member is honored, the whole rest of the body rejoices. But when one member suffers, guess what? The whole body suffers with it. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, how does the whole body feel? It doesn't matter how the whole body feels. You're just concentrated on that thumb. It hurts and you're hopping up and down holding it. You know, the, the whole body is suffering because of one member that's hurting. And that's the way it is here. He says, those who suffer adversity, consider you're in the same body. Hurt with them. Be sympathetic. Think about how they're going, what they're going through and Minister to them as you can, pray for them, but be mindful of them. Don't just forget about them. He moves on in, verse, in the next verses, and we, he deals with morality here. Obviously, our relationships with one another are very important. If we're going to serve God acceptably, that's the way we're to treat one another. But also, in the area of morals, he says here, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all in the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The area of personal morality is absolutely essential in the Christian life. We are to keep ourselves pure. We are to keep all ourselves unspotted from the world. Listen, we live in a world where immorality is just blatantly advertised, promoted, I mean... If you live a moral life and a pure life, you are going to be looked on as a freak. But God demands this. God demands this. He says, "Be you, you are to be pure. And he says here, marriage is honorable. It is the institution created by God. God designed it. And the whole marriage relationship is a beautiful thing in God's parameters. But outside of God's parameters, it is evil, it is defiling, it is destructive, and it will ruin your testimony 
in front of the unbelieving world. And, as the scripture says, the reproach is not wiped away. And who do we have to think of when we think of that? When the world hears the word David, what's the next word out of their mouth? And Goliath? No. It's David and Bathsheba. Of course. The reproach is not wiped away. It's a stain. Now, was he forgiven? Yes, he was. But it was a reproach. And look at the judgment that came upon him and his family as a result of his immorality. Marriage is honorable in all in the bed undefiled, but do not be mistaken. Whoremongers and adulterers, God not might judge, will judge. God will judge. He goes on in verses 5 and 6. He's talking about, of course, marital fidelity in verse 4. It comes down in verses 5 and 6, and he talks about covetousness, covetousness and contentment. Covetousness. Let your conversation or your lifestyle, the way you live, be free from covetousness. And then he defines that for us. And be content with such things as ye have. What is covetousness? Really, it is a lack of contentment in your current state. It is a lack of contentment in your current state. If you are not content where you are right now, then you're covetous. That is a sin. It is something to be confessed. Okay? Contentment. Does contentment depend on how much you have? No. Contentment is not a state of, the, of your environment. Contentment is not conditioned upon your environment. Contentment is an attitude of the heart. Contentment is an attitude of the heart. Let your conversation be without covetousness. What is covetousness? Really, it's a lack of contentment. It's wanting more, not being satisfied with what God has provided. And the scriptures tell us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. You know, we, we look at the Ten Commandments and we think about, well, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and we think about idols, and we think, oh, yeah, well, I don't have any statues of Buddha in my house. I mean, we're, that's a third world country. Anybody that worships a stone or a stick, that's ridiculous. And we think, you know, so if, really, that verse couldn't even apply to us because we don't have idols. No Buddhas, no whatever you call those other things that the Eastern nations have or countries have. Uh, but what does the Bible describe as idolatry here? Colossians 3 5. And covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, idolatry isn't just having a little statue on your shelf. Covetousness is anything that you place ahead of your contentment in Christ. Anything that comes ahead of your contentment in Christ, anything that detracts from your total satisfaction in Jesus Christ is idolatry. And how do we know that? Because look at what he says here in verse 5. He says, let your conversation be free from or without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And you say, oh, well, I don't see the connect. What does the presence of God have to do with the things that I've got? I mean, sure, I'm saved, so I have, I have the Lord. I, I mean, I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. Um, and I have his, his presence. But what's that got to do with, you know, having a new car? Or more things, or what's that got to do with these things? He, why, why does he say that? Be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If truly God is sufficient, and if God is providing for all of my needs, as he said he would back in Matthew chapter 6, remember what he said back then? He says, Take no thought. What you shall eat, wear your put on. He says, you, you first take thought of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other earthly things that you need, your father will provide. He says he, has, he knows what you need even before you ask. Now, so this verse is telling us that because we have the presence of God, because he will never leave us nor forsake us, He's quoting from the Old Testament passage there in Deuteronomy and also in Joshua chapter 1, where God says, I will never leave you, I will not forsake you, I will not fail you. If that is true, then why would we want anything? David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack any good thing. If God wants me to have it, he will provide it for me in his perfect time, and I can relax and wait on him. But what happens? Well, a neighbor's got a new car, or, you know, I'm looking at the things of the world, and they're kind of flashy, and, you know, they're a little better than things I've got, and boy, it would be sure nice to have that. And it's so easy for us to let our eyes be attracted to the material things of this world and to be not content with what God has provided. Folks, that is covetousness, and that is in essence saying, God, you aren't enough. You're not enough. That is idolatry. And so, if we're going to serve God acceptably, we're going to have to be content. And contentment is learned. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11? He says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content to be satisfied, to be at rest. Paul, you know, you're not talking about that time when you were in prison. Well, I wrote that when I was in prison. Okay. Paul was content. He was content in prison. Do you know why he was content in prison? Because he knew that was God's will. And God was with him. And you know what? When God's time was for him to get out of jail, he got out of jail. In Philippians, when he was at the jail, in, well, he was in jail in, at Philippi. God sent him a get-out-of-jail-free card in the middle of the night. It was a great earthquake, and God had no problem getting Paul and Silas out of jail when it was his time. And so what were Paul and Silas doing in jail at the time? Well, they weren't complaining. In fact, they were so content, they pulled out their little pocket hymnal and started singing hymns together. Probably two-part harmony. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, they were singing, singing praises to the Lord. Only one who is content can sing in the midst of trials. Covetousness and contentment. If we're going to serve God effectively and reverently and acceptably, we need to be content. 
And note the testimony, the testimony that it gives in verse 6. He says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I, shall not fear what man, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. If you have the Lord, you should be fearless. I did not say foolish. I said fearless. The fear of man brings a snare. Was Paul afraid of what man would do to him? No. In fact, on his way back to Jerusalem, he was warned. Hey, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to they're bind you and throw you in jail. And Paul says, you trying to make me scared? He goes, I'm ready to be bound to Jerusalem, to suffer, even to die for the cause of Christ, if that be the Lord's will. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. What's the worst that man can do? Well, the Bible says, fear not him that can destroy the body, but fear him that after destroying the body, can destroy the soul in hell. There's only one who can do that, and that's God. If you fear man, the Bible says fear means that you are not made perfect in love, because he that is made perfect in love does not fear. When I love God, I do not fear man. Amen. The fear of man bringeth a snare. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of the government coming in and persecuting Christians, pulling you out and chopping off your head or, you know, killing you? You afraid of that? Better not be. Hasn't happened yet. But what if it does? If you have the Lord, what do you lack? So that we may boldly say, not timidly or hiding, but the Lord is my helper. There's the three Hebrew children for King Nebuchadnezzar. Bow down or burn. What'd they say? The Lord is our helper. He may or he may not deliver us, but O oh, King, we are not bowing down to your big golden image. And so he said, in the fire you go. And they went in. And they came out. God did deliver them, but not all were delivered. We move on in this chapter. In the next section, it really talks about our activity, or our, our um, conversation in the area of the church. In verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Here he's talking about those who have the rule over you. And when he talks about the rule, he's talking about ecclesiastical or spiritual authority there in the church. And what were those who had the rule over them doing? When you, speak, when you think of the rule over, people kind of back up and say, whoa, wait a minute, nobody's going to rule over me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the leadership of the church who speak with the authority of the Word of God. And what is the authority of the pastor? It's simply to give you what God said. It is a delegated authority. I don't have the authority to tell you what color to paint your house. Okay? I don't have the authority to tell you when to move, what job to take. Not at all. But I do have the authority to say, Thus saith the Lord. And I'm just the messenger. 
So the, any authority that I have is delegated from him who wrote the word of God. And so he says, remember them who have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Notice, it didn't say whose lifestyle follow, did it? No. There's not a minister of God on this earth who does not have faults. And it does not say whose faults follow. It says whose faith follow. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and you can look at every single person who is listed by name, and you can say, oh, wow, look at this great faith. But what about, but, but what about a David? We didn't mention Bathsheba. What about Samson? That guy was a mess. What does it say? He says, whose faith follow. In chapter 11, those men are mentioned for their faith, not their faults. And you will not find any man without faults. And neither are you, nor am I. We all have faults. The scriptures are not telling you to follow my faults as the pastor. You need to know what faith is. And if you can't discern between faith and faults, then I have pity on you. There are a lot of people out there who claim to be Christians who are following people in high positions of influence, of authority, and they're not following their faith. In fact, they're following their faults blindly, and they're misguided, and they're deceived. Be careful. Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you, not their opinions, not psychology, but who have spoken unto you what? The word of God, thus saith the Lord, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. In other words, look at the fruit of their faith. Look at the result of their faith. Okay? God looked at David and called him a man after his own heart even though David blew it in some areas. You know, David repented, and David was forgiven, just like any of us, any of us. We sin, what do we have to do? We, we, we repent. When we repent, what are we? are forgiven. That doesn't erase the effects. No, it doesn't. There's cause and effects. There are effects of sins. There are long-ranging effects of sin that will be there. It doesn't mean we're not forgiven. And even though David was a sinner, just like every one of us, God still called him a man after his own heart. When David was confronted by his sin, he confessed. Whose faith follow considering the end or the end result of their conversation. And the great comfort is this. Verse 8. Verse 8 actually ties into verse 7. If you watch men... If you put your eyes on human leaders, if you put your eyes on me, I will fail you, and I'll be the first to admit it. But guess what? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's why in chapter 12, who are we looking unto? Looking unto the pastor? 
No, as we run our race, what are we looking? We're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our race. I might just be a first base coach, okay? Encouraging you as you're running around the bases of life, so to speak. But you know what? Your, your eyes, the ultimate goal isn't first base. No, it's home plate. You got to get back home, okay? Our eyes are looking to who? Looking to Jesus. If you put your eyes on men, you will be burned. You will be disappointed. You will be let down. But it's your own fault because you're looking at the wrong goal. The goal is not to be like so-and-so, brother so-and-so, doctor so-and-so, the head of whatever. No. Look at Jesus because he won't fail. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why our eyes are to be on him. And therefore, since our eyes are on him, and if they are, don't be carried away by strange and or by diverse and strange doctrines. Don't get led astray by fancy talkers. Don't get led astray by human opinion. Listen, if it doesn't square with the word of God, which is the test, leave it be. Stay away from it. Be not carried about or blown back and forth with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been exercised or been occupied therein. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on right then at that time, but evidently there was some kind of teaching about maybe particular meats or something about what they were eating and how it affected their spiritual walk. And what was the writer's point here? Listen. Meats, foods, because you know what? Don't be occupied with the temporal. Don't let your focus be on what you're eating. Really? Your food? It's fuel. It goes in the mouth and it goes out. That's what Jesus said. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God's going to destroy them both. If your focus is on what you're eating, or by extension, if your focus is on really anything that is temporal in nature and of this earth, then you're focusing on the wrong thing. Don't be occupied with that. Don't let that consume you. And I have my own opinion. Don't consume too much. But that's not what the passage is saying. Okay. But it says, don't let those things consume you. And there are teachings out there, you know, there are cults and there are false teachers out there that have all these restrictions and things on this and even dietary. And like, wait a minute, that's not, that's not where our focus is to be. So don't be carried about, Car carried about and blown around with diverse and strange doctrines. Strange doctrines means something that the Bible does not teach. Opinions of men. Speaking of eating, he goes on and he talks about our New Testament or our New Covenant participation. Look at the privilege we have. He says, we have an altar where they, where they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Now, these verses right here are dealing with the offering of atonement. The offering of atonement. We have an altar where they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. 
Now, this is, a again, a specific reference to the offering of atonement. The Day of Atonement, what would they do? They would take these animals they were offering, and they would take their blood. The blood, of course, was offered in the most holy place after it was offered for Aaron or for the high priest, and they'd go into the most holy place. But what did they do with the bodies? Usually, the bodies were burned there at the tabernacle. Not so the Day of Atonement. They took these bodies of these beasts, and they took them outside of the camp, and they burned them in their entirety outside of the camp. You are not to eat or partake of any of the meat of that particular offering. There are many offerings that could be eaten, that could be shared, and that the priests would eat. It was how they, how they lived. Not so the offering of atonement. It was burned outside the camp in its entirety. They did not partake. And look at the comparison he is making from the Old Covenant to the New. He says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Without the gate, outside of the city. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside of Jerusalem. And that was significant. because he's, And he's showing us the significance right here. Verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. There is so much right there. I know we've talked about this a little bit. And we went through this in particular. But here, again, there's a comparison. The Old Testament, the priests, the people did not partake of the bodies of the beasts whose blood was taken into the holiest place for the atonement. However, Christ's sacrifice is different. We have a right to eat. We have a command to partake in the new covenant. There's a difference. Let me remind you of a passage. It may have come to mind as I've said these things, but it may not have. But if you go back to John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking here to the Jews. They're listening to him. He's talking to them about being the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. In verse 48, I am that bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. And he goes on, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which served the sanctuary. They weren't allowed to partake of the bodies of those beasts. What are we commanded to do? We're commanded to partake of Christ's body. Now, the, his listeners were, were thinking physically. And they're thinking, is this cannibalism? I mean, really, they were. You look at the conversation going, and they were just kind of like, you know, heads exploding kind of a thing. What is it going? He says, the Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, Jesus further confused them, didn't he? Look what he says, verse 53, John chapter 6. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my, bo- and my blood is drink indeed. And he doesn't even stop there. He keeps going. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Does that not give us a clear view of what the writer of Hebrews said when he says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which served the tabernacle? And here is Jesus telling the Jews, yes, you must partake of me if you want eternal life. It's different than those Old Testament sacrifices. And so he says here in Hebrews 13, verse 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us do what? Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. Bearing his reproach. You know what that verse says? If you are going to go to Christ, there is separation. Where did he suffer? Outside the camp. You want to be with him? Where are you going to have to go? You're going to have to leave. You're going to have to leave the city picture here of the world, you are going to have to be separate. Let us go, therefore, to him where? Outside the camp. Bearing his reproach. We have a great privilege, but it also involves separation. Separation from the world. What was Abraham looking for? A city not made with hands. What does it say in verse 14 here? For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Listen, if you're, if you're at home in this world, if this world is your home, then you're not going to leave it. But we're to go out to separate ourselves to him, separating from the world, going out of the city. There's really a picture of separation there. And if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is that great passage which describes Separation in the clearest of terms. In the clearest of terms. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's many applications there. Definitely, obviously speaking about marriage would be the first and easiest but unequally yoked. Talk about a yoke, talking about some type of contractual agreement. Okay, not going to go into all of that, but I want, you to, I want you to notice why he says not to do that. And this is what I'm driving at, because this is why we come out of the city. Because what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Opposites, aren't they? What agreement it says, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion or fellowship, again, hath light with darkness? Can you mix light and darkness? 
No. You go in the room, shut the door, turn on the light, it's light. You turn it off, it's not gray and fuzzy. No, it's dark. It's one or the other. Light dispels darkness. What communion hath light with darkness? He goes on. Listen, he wants you to get this. What concord, concord means agreement, hath Christ with Belial? What agreement does Christ have with the devil? <laughs> None. Or what part hath he that believeth with an unbeliever or an infidel, one without faith? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant. Wherefore, verse 17, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There needs to be a clear and a clean separation of the believer from the city, from the world. We go out of the city bearing his reproach. What is the reproach? It's the world saying, why are you leaving us? Isn't what we have good enough for you? It's good enough for us. Who do you think you are? We're not looking for an earthly city, folks. We're looking for a heavenly city. And this, you know, that passage in 2 Corinthians is such a great passage because it's a test. It's a litmus test for us. To what extent do you smell like the world? To what extent do you look like the world? To what extent do you act like the world? To what extent are you separate from the world? There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians. And on Sunday, they praise the Lord. And the other six days of the week, you'd never know that they were Christians. They fit in so well into the city. They have too much agreement with the world. Their philosophy, their desires, their affections, their conversation, their appearance, their associations, everything about them smells of smoke. It smells like the world. It, you're a Christian? Wow, I'd never known. That's horrible. May it never be said of you, I'd never known you were a Christian. Now, there is to be a distinction, a clear distinction. If there's not, then you are not separate from the world. How do you think Lot got along so well in Sodom? Because he compromised his testimony. What a sad, sad man. And the thing is, we're to be different. You know, as you look through the Old Testament and you go through the the laws that God gave his people. You look at the ceremonial laws, and the laws that dictated every single aspect of their lives, not just what they ate, but what they wore, where they went, how they went, and all of that. And you think, man, why? I'm, I'm so glad I don't have to live under all those kind of rules. But what was their purpose? Did you know that one of the purposes that God had for his people was that they would be different from all the other nations around them? Not just different in where they lived, not just different in the law they followed, but different in every aspect of their life, even when it came down to what they 
ate, their diet. God said, you are to be distinct. You are my peculiar people. You're to be different from the world in all manner of conversation. And listen, that's what ought to characterize us. And then you've got Christians that say, oh, well, that's legalism. Really? That's legalism? Legalism points to a motive. And if your motive is, I'm going to do these things so that God likes me, then yes, you're a Pharisee. But if your motive is because he loves you and you want to please him, folks, that's not legalism. That's love. Why should you want to be different from the world? Is it so that you can be arrogant and kind of lord it over people and feel like you're better than someone else? No. Why should we be different from the world? Because he's called us out of the world. He's brought us out. What was the problem with the Old Testament Jews? They came out of Egypt, but they still had a hankering for Egypt. Oh, man. We're sick of this manna. I wish we could eat some of those leeches and garlic, no, leeks and garlics that they fed us in Egypt. <laughs> Not leeches. Leeks and garlics. Oh, that food. Oh, the flesh we had by the flesh pods. We had so much good food there in Egypt. Wasn't it, wasn't it wonderful to be in Egypt? Wait a minute. Weren't you complaining for years about your bondage in Egypt and, and how they were beating you and, 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 and torturing you and, and lording it over you? Weren't you crying out for freedom? Oh, Egypt. I can smell the garlics. Oh, I wish I was... Moses, you brought us out of here to die. I wish we died in Egypt. You know what? There wasn't a good separation, was there? Lord delivered him out of Egypt. And you can take the Jew out of Egypt. But somehow, a lot of those Jews didn't have Egypt taken out of them. And they ended up dying in the wilderness. There's a separation. God calls his people out. If we're going to please him, if we're going to, listen, if we're going to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, then we've got to come out. We're going to have to come out of the city and bear his reproach. And the world will reproach you if you are walking in righteous agreement with the Lord. Yea, and all that live godly shall suffer persecution. But let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, we have no continuing city. This is not our home. It should not be hard for you to leave the city. It should not be hard for you to turn your back on the things of this world. Because this is not your home. This is not your city. This is not your permanent abiding place. We are seeking the stability and the permanence of a heavenly city, one that is yet to come. By him, therefore, verse 15, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You see, in our new covenant participation, we have great privilege We partake of the sacrifice, but we also see the separation come out of the city. But we see thanksgiving. 
What sacrifice does God approve of? The sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. He continues here with more instruction. He says, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. And that doesn't mean to send letters or emails to one another. That word communicate means to share, to share, be ready to distribute to the needs of others, but to communicate and to be generous. Don't forget. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Listen, God is pleased when we take care of one another. We look out for one another's needs. That pleases the Lord. Verse 17, again, he addresses the leadership. He talks about obedience and accountability. He says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. They watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Listen, there's a day of accountability coming. And there is... There is a command here to obey them that have the rule over you. If you want to know what the rule is, go back to verse, what? Verse 7. Those who are encouraging you and instructing you in the word of God, there's the authority. That's the only rule over you that ecclesiastical authority has. It's the word of God, but you better obey it because you're going to stand before God someday, and so will they. And they're going to give an account for you. And they want to do it with joy. Someday I'm going to stand before the Lord. Guess what I'm going to have to do? He's going to ask me about each one of you by name. Oh, boy. And you know what? I want to be able to do that with joy. When your name comes up. Oh, yeah. What a blessing he was. What a blessing she was. Delighted in your word. But there will be some who, when the account comes, it's going to be done with tears. And that's not unprofitable for me. That's not unprofitable for the leaders. It's unprofitable for those who caused grief. obedience, accountability, and then he says, hey, listen, you've got these leaders. Pray for them. You pray for your leaders. Pray for them. He says, pray for us. Listen, I covet your prayers. Absolutely. Pray for us. And what was the prayer? Pray for us where we trust we have a good conscience in all things, desiring or willing to live honestly, honorably. Listen, you pray for your leaders. You pray for your pastor. You pray for those who are in leadership over you that we will live in such a way that is honorable is pleasing to God, that sets a right example. And then, of course, in verse 19, he says, But I beseech you the rather do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray that I get out of jail. Okay. Sounds like he is in prison, but he'd like to be restored. And then we come here to the end of the chapter, and he gives this great benediction, which is such a blessing. We've looked at this in detail. But look at that prayer in verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or complete in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is that prayer? That prayer is simply this. The 
that God would make you complete in every good work to do his will, working that which pleases him. I just kind of took out the extra phrases there and gave you the basic message of that prayer. God make you complete. God complete you in every good work to do his will, to do that which is pleasing in his sight. Listen, that is a great prayer. That is a prayer according to the will of God that he will answer. And that is a prayer that we ought to be praying for every, each one of us ought to be praying for the other. That is the goal of every believer. We walk in such a way. And then he closes the letter. And verse 22 is actually interesting because he gives us really the the import or the desired effect of the letter that he has written. And what was it? I beseech you, brethren, suffer or um, bear with the word of exhortation. Here's a word of exhortation, strong encouragement. This letter is to be encouraging, exhorting. Suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. I could have written a lot more. Uh, Let me be brief, he says, Um, but this is a word of exhortation. I hope that you have come away from the book of Hebrews encouraged, exhorted, strengthened in your faith, strengthened to continue to the end. And he finishes up with some information. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute or greet them that have the rule over you, and all the saints they have visited Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. He concludes it by calling God's grace upon them all. Amen. There is the conclusion of the book of Hebrews. But there's that last chapter, really with a lot of instruction, and I really believe it is to help us to understand how that we are to serve God acceptably, with reverence, and godly fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this study that we've had on the book of Hebrews. Lord, we don't know the human author, but we do know that it is divinely inspired. Lord, it is your word, and we thank you for that. Lord, may these truths not soon depart from our minds, but Lord, may they be embedded in our hearts Lord, that you would continually bring back the verses and, Lord, the principles that are clearly taught in this book. Bring them back to our minds. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just take these truths, instruct us. Lord, may we be willing and eager listeners that we might be instructed in the path of righteousness, that we may serve you acceptably with reverence, and godly fear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.